us. One of the things we do here at Central City Baptist Church is make sure we open up God's Word. We open the Word uh, week in and week out, where, wherever it is we left off. Right now we're uh, working our way through the book of Exodus and uh, been in it for, for the last several weeks and, and we'll still be in it for a few more. And then as we do this, we, we see how the Lord is speaking wholly through this book. That it, it's not just a bunch of random thoughts that the, the author of Exodus, Moses, is speaking the word of the Lord to a people, even to us still today, even though this book was written nearly 6,000 years ago. The Lord still is speaking and showing us here is what happened in its cultural context. And now here's what it means for us today. So over the last few weeks, we have began to look at the second part of the book of Exodus. The first part of the book of Exodus was about God bringing his people, Israel, out of slavery, out of the land of Egypt and on their way to Sinai. But now, beginning uh, two weeks ago, when, when we began to look at the Ten Commandments, we saw God beginning to give his law, his instruction to his people on what it meant to be in covenant with him there at Sinai. And that's going to continue over the rest of the book of Exodus. The whole second half of Exodus is about God's instruction to his people, what it means to live in covenant with him. And that continues today. We see it here as the Ten Commandments have already been given. There's further instruction given of what that is to look like practically. Now, I hope many of you, especially if you are uh, a member or a regular attender, have already taken time to read the passage ahead of time in Exodus 20, 22 through 23, 32. If you've not, take some time this afternoon to read through that. We do not have time this morning to read through every bit of that. But it will be important to, to further, hopefully, drive home the point of this sermon. So, if you have a Bible, go ahead and open up to Exodus 20, beginning in verse 22, as a, a means of reference this morning. And while you're turning there, I want to go ahead and give the main point I think of this text and this sermon. Here's the, the main idea. A call to justice does not hinder the mission of God. It advances it as we labor to show the glory of a just God. Let me repeat that. A call to justice does not hinder the mission of God. It advances it as we labor to show the glory of a just God. And we're going to look at this in three points. A call to right worship in point number one. Point number two, a call to pursue justice. And point number three, a hope in the midst of the pursuit. So let's look first at a call to right worship. You know, seeing even the title justice, the temptation is to wonder what in the world does this have to do with being a Christian? What in the world does this have to do with the people of God? And yet the reality is everything. The very uh, foundation, though, of justice, before we can even turn our attention to what that means and what that looks like, starts with God. Beginning in, in Exodus 21-1 through 23-9, we see almost 29 
different instructions or laws regarding how the society is to live and guard itself in this pursuit of justice. In these 29 different instructions, though, there's something that bookends them, and that is namely a right worship of God alone. That's what we see here in 2022 20, through 26 and in the first part of this right call to worship or a call to right worship. In verse 22, there in chapter 20, it says, And the Lord said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the people of Israel, You have seen for yourselves that I have talked with you from heaven. So the reminder, all right, Moses is now alone on the mountain with God. The people are down at the bottom of the mountain, not able to come near or touch it. But as God is speaking to Moses alone, he wants him as he goes back down to relay, look, you know, you've heard me speak to you. As I thundered and boomed and you heard my loud voice, as you were terrified to hear it, you know that I have spoken. And therefore, there in verse 23, you shall not make gods of silver to be with me, nor shall you make for yourselves gods of gold. This is the God who speaks out of the heavens to them, and they are being instructed once more, do not make for yourselves gods of silver or gold. Why the redundancy, though? In our, our culture setting, we're, we're wondering that. Why the redundancy? Why, God, are you going back to what you've already given in the second commandment? Do not make for yourselves any idols. Because the people were living in a day and a culture and when every nation that they would go through, travel through, and even the nations of the land that they were promised would have a plurality of gods, particularly those made of gold and silver and wood. These would have been hand-carved out. So God is making clear from the very get-go, do not become like them. A right worship of me is not to be like the nations. A right worship of me is to be how I tell you and instruct you to be distinct in the world. That's what God is driving at here in this first point. Our first part of this section of text here in 2022 through 26. In fact, he, he goes on further and says, An altar of earth you shall make for me and sacrifice it on your burnt offerings and your peace offerings, your sheep and your oxen. In every place where I cause my name to be remembered, I will come to you and bless you. Here's the Lord, they're not to have these idols to make gods of silver and gold, but they are to make an altar. But a specific design of altar, one of the earth. It goes on to say down in, in verse 25, if you make me an altar of stone, you shall not build it of hewn stones, or, or as the NIV, decorative stones. For if you wield your tool on it, you profane it. What in the world? What in the world, God, are you trying to tell us here? He's trying to tell the people, look, your, your nations, the, these gods that you're trying to, to go against in light of making sure you're worshiping me rightly and alone, they, these nations, are all about the altar of design and show. You're not to be like them. 
You're not to be about having an altar of show. It's to be of the earth, natural, simplistic. Why? I love how, how the word works. Look at, in verse 24 there, halfway through it, when it begins uh, talking about you shall make for yourself sacrifice on it, burn offerings and your peace offerings, your sheep and your oxen. And then it goes on to add, in every place where I cause my name to be remembered, I will come to you and bless you. The altar is not for show. It's not to draw our eyes to the altar itself. It's what's upon the altar. Namely, the sacrifice, the shedding of blood in order to atone for sin. So God is making clear to his people, you're not to have the wrong attention here. It's the sacrifice that is to have your attention because it's pointing you to the need of it. I don't care how fancy your altar is. The altar is a place for my sacrifices to be had so that you can be made right with me. Because you need it. God is concerned about right worship. He wants his people to be focused on the right things and not distracted by the wrong things. He even goes on to tell them, okay, you're not to do this. You're not to profane it. But then in, in verse 26, 6, it says, And you shall not go up by steps to my altar, that your nakedness be not exposed on it. I hope everyone in here is wearing undergarments in our day and time. But in ancient culture, that would have not happened. They would have had a, a, a robe on with everything just kind of bare and hanging out underneath. So therefore, to walk up on steps, their, their bottom private areas are going to be showing on the altar. And therefore, they're defaming this altar in what it's for. It's not about having sexual organs seen on the altar. It's about the sacrifice of the shedding of blood in order to atone for sin. So God gives these specific instructions to guard the altar and what it's about and what it's for. So the right worship then, he's telling the people, is about this sacrifice, looking to the shedding of blood so that you and I can be in right relationship. But this isn't the only place. Again, there's going to be 29 ways the Lord gives instructions of, of justice that we're going to look at in point number two. But on the other end of this, on, on the book end of this section of laws about justice, the Lord goes again to about a right worship of him. Turn with me in your Bibles to Exodus 23, beginning in verse 10. In verses 10 through 19, we see a variety of different laws given. We see here, it starts with, For six years you shall sow your land and gather in its yield, but the seventh year you shall let it rest and lie fallow, that the poor of your people may eat, and what they leave the beast of the field may eat. You shall do likewise with your vineyard and with your olive orchard. It gives simple instructions of, okay, a right uh, worship of me, and I, I'll, I'll show this connection in a moment, it is about making sure even the land gets rest. Making sure it is cared for because I'm going to provide you through the land. But here's one way of practically speaking, I'm going to do that. Your land's going to have rest to heal. Even the land itself is going to get a year of not having crops planted upon it. 
I'm telling you, as one who, who's had a family of nothing but farmers, when the land gets overused, it becomes hard to work. It becomes more difficult to produce good fruit. So the Lord is giving specific instructions to help the people along the way. Here's how I'm going to do this. Sure, the Lord could have worked the miracle there, but he's, he's giving this practical wisdom to them. But it also symbolizes what they're to do. In verse 12, six days you shall do your work, but on the seventh day you shall rest, that your ox and your donkey may have rest, and the son of your servant woman and the alien may be refreshed. Sabbath laws again being reminded. Six days work, seventh day is for rest. God is giving rest to his people, to the animals, to the servants, and to the land. He's ensuring that it has rest, pointing to a greater rest in him. Skipping verse 13 and, and looking 14 through 19, we see a call to three different festivals. That of uh, unleavened bread there at the Passover. Uh, then we see uh, the Feast of Harvest, which would have been taken place as the wheat was gathered in for the first time. And then we see the Feast of Ingathering at the end of the year or the end of the harvest season. These three feasts, it says on down in verse 17, that three times in the year shall all your males appear before the Lord God. That all the males are to come and appear before the Lord in Jerusalem for these gathered feasts to rightly worship God. In fact, he says, you shall not offer the blood of my sacrifice with anything leavened or, or let the fat and, of my feast remain until morning, giving specific instructions of how this is to look. The beast of the, or the best of the first fruits of your ground you shall bring into the house of the Lord your God. And then he gives this funny thing. You shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. What in the world? Well, one, the pagans would have done this. They would have boiled a young goat in its mother's milk. And it tarnishes the very representation this is to have. That milk is supposed to give that young goat nourishment and life and care. And yet here, the, the pagan nations would boil this young goat in its mother's milk in their sacrifices. Instead of it giving life, it's what they're using to season that's why the forbidding of this, it, it would have been a cultural thing that most of us would have not grasped. But again, all of this is pointing to a right worship. Now look back with me at verse 13 here in chapter 23. Here's why I say this all has to do with worship. Verse 13, pay attention to all that I have said to you and make no mention of the names of other gods, nor let it be heard. On your lips. The instructions here of the way to worship God is to ensure the people are worshiping God alone. That they are not turning to some other God in doing the same practices of the nations. When we listen to God and His instructions, He guards us against false worship and wrong worship. Because he points us to specific instructions that point us specifically to him and him alone. When we stray from these, that's when false and wrong worship begin. Because we begin to think, oh, maybe I should be a little bit more like the nations 
and do what they do. I want to be like those uh, Philistines. I want to be like the Canaanites. I want to be like the other lands. So I'm going to do what they do. And it begins to pull away from God. So the people are being guarded here. Again, on God alone and a right worship of Him. Now, of course, Christian, we do not still give animal sacrifices. We still do not have feasts in which we gather to celebrate yearly in these three different feasts. We do have a supper that we are going to celebrate at the end of our service this morning. A call to remember on what Christ has done and the once for all sacrifice of the shedding of his own blood, which covers our sin and all who believe in him. Sin is dealt with once and for all in that. Christian, the, the whole point of this is to ensure are we worshiping God rightly, in the right ways. The Lord has given us specific instructions in how to do that throughout the whole of the Bible. I just want us to focus here just for a moment on this reality that he calls us to gather around the table to remember what Christ has done. As we drink the, the juice and, and take the bread, we remember that Jesus' body was pierced for our transgressions. That his blood was shed to cover our sins, to make us as white as snow. He does this and we remember it. So that we worship the Lord alone, remembering that it is only by this blood in which we are cleansed from sin. That there is no other way. A right worship of God leads us to this. If we were to simply say, you know what, this seems like a silly meal. Why drink bread and juice? Maybe we'll just do something different. Well, that's great, but it will lead away from God. Let us focus in on the right worship of God and have true worship of Him. Because a true worship of God leads us to reflecting rightly of God, which then causes us to carry out the commands of God. But if we start wrongly with a false worship of God and start worshiping the other gods alongside, we cannot carry out His commandments. We will be too busy fighting our own hearts in folly because of a false worship. But again, this is to lead us to obedience. And that's where we turn in our second point this morning. A call to pursue justice. Jump back with me to 21 verse 1. We see here in 21.1. Now these are the rules that you shall set before them. When you buy a Hebrew slave, he shall serve six years, and in the seventh he shall go out free for nothing. I mean, Paul's right there. I am so thankful for the ESV and, and so many other faithful translations, but I, I disagree here this use of slave, and I'm going to explain why. The slave in, in our, our setting and context, we, we think back to the, the slavery of uh, bringing and entrapping those from Africa and forcing them to come over and enslaving them with no sight of freedom. That's a, When we think of slavery in our context, that just gives a, a wrong connotation of what the Bible is trying to convince us of here in Exodus. 
The, the Hebrew word ebed here, it can mean slave in that force. But as, as we're going to see here in the context, it's not identifying with somebody who is forced into this. It's somebody who voluntarily goes into it. So therefore, the better word is a hired worker or a servant. It, it, it's that idea. And here's why. In verse Three, it says, if he comes in single, he shall go out single. If he comes in married, then his wife shall go out with him. If his master gives him a wife and she bears him sons or daughters, the wife and the children shall be her masters and he shall go out alone. But if the slave plainly says, I love my master, my wife and my children, I will not go free. Then his master shall bring him to God and he shall bring him to the door, the doorpost. And his master shall bore his ear through with an owl and he shall be his slave forever. Or servant forever. Again, all of this is rooted there in verse 2. The fact of he shall serve six years and the seventh he shall go free. What it's talking about here is not a long-term slavery of forcedness. The cultural context of this and why it's kind of under this idea of the people of God are to labor for justice is because it's laboring to care for the vulnerable, the poor, those that need a second chance. The going into the servanthood is not something that's just forced upon them. It's something they willingly do. Think of, of somebody who has squandered their wealth and in need of assistance. There is no checks for them to go and collect. There's no means of them. So the only way is this indentured servant type of going in and working for somebody in order to be fed, in order to have a roof over their head. Those that have come upon hardship, there's no means to care for them except for this. The servanthood is here to give those in hard times a second chance to work for six years, see what a successful management of land and family and, and being responsible looks like, and then send them out in the seventh year after six years of labor, hoping they're better equipped to enter into society, to be able to care for their, their finances better and their homes better. The whole law here is about caring for the vulnerable amongst the people. In fact, so much so that this servant, it goes in and out how he came. Married, he goes out married. Comes in single, he goes out single. Even with the very fact that it says, uh, if his master gives him a wife and she bears him sons or daughters, the wife and her children shall be her masters and he shall go out alone. This is not trying to be cruel to the servant. This is actually trying to protect the wife and children that came to him while he was in his servitude. Think about it this way. If he's already in need of assistance because he squandered his wealth, what's going to happen for him if he's not learned his lesson and goes out and squanders it again? Now a wife and child are vulnerable to it. This very act is calling to protect the wife and the child from the husband being or not responsible with his finances and care. But culturally, there, there was set in place this opportunity for the husband, if he had his affairs in order, to go and to say, I want my wife and my child. I'm going to buy them from you so that they now are with me. This showing a right heart orientation for them. The laws are set up in a way to care. And then further instructions are given for, for a daughter that sold 
uh, into a master, again, into this indentured servanthood. Again, we, we look at this culturally and think, what in the world? Why, why would a man sell his daughter? He wouldn't in the sense of, of slavery if we use it in that culture. But if we use it in realizing, again, there are cultures around the world in which you are born poor and there is not a lot of opportunity for you to change that circumstances. The father may give his daughter to a master of land in hopes that she may marry the owner's son and become and improve her financial stability. Caring for her. So he does this in hopes. It, we see that in the text. It, it says in verse 8, If she does not please her master who has designated her for himself, then he shall let her be redeemed. She goes back to her family. She just can't be sold into slavery or to somebody else. She goes back to her family if the master of the house finds displeasure in her. So she's guarded. Verse 9, if he designates her for his son, he shall deal with her as with a daughter. So she now doesn't become just a servant. She is the daughter of the master and provided for. In fact, it goes on to even say that if the master's son changes his mind, that uh, she is to be provided for. There in verse 10, if he takes another wife to himself, he shall not diminish her food, her clothing, or her marital rights. She is cared for. All of these laws are about caring for and loving the neighbor, giving justice throughout the land of, of what relational responsibility and care for one another look like. It goes on and it gives further laws uh, dealing with whoever strikes a man, he shall die. A uh, death penalty here comes in in these next few verses. Uh, if one uh, didn't lie in wait, there's a city of refuge. But if he intentionally kills, it calls for death. There in Hebrews 21, 12. Verse 14 uh, drives that home further. But verse 15, whoever strikes his father or his mother shall be put to death forever. Again, corporal punishment. The, the idea of death penalty. Here, the, the striking. And then verse 17, the, the cursing of his father or his mother shall be put to death. Again, going back to the fifth commandment that we shall honor our father and mother. It's not about civil obedience as a child. It's about caring for them in their old age. Caring for them when, if they're not cared for by the son or the daughter, they have no hope. They're essentially as good as dead. So to curse them, to, to write them off, to, to say, what you would have had for me is Corbin as the Pharisees did then they deserve death for breaking this. Then, in verse 16, whoever steals a man and sells him, and anyone found in possession of him shall be put to death. To steal somebody, in, in the sense of even looking back on the slavery that took place uh, in England and, and in the Americas, that slavery, stealing of people, deserve death according to the law of God. But then there, there's provisions made up in, in the midst of, of people getting into strife because conflict was going to happen. God knew, even though he called his people to love one another, strife and conflict would enter. But he gives provisions. Okay, a quarrel breaks out and one strikes another. What now? Well, the one who's injured is to be cared for by the one who struck him. Leaving him provided for. There wasn't workers' comp. There wasn't 
insurance to, to care for that. So this was God's means of caring for his people, for the people caring for one another. The one who struck would have to pay the wages that the, the injured would have missed. Then that of a slave is even cared for. Those who uh, strike him, and if he doesn't die, he's, he, there's nothing done because he already is working for his master. But if he dies, then vengeance is owed. Again, just moving through these quickly, I encourage you to read later. When men strive together and hit a pregnant woman, so, so that a, of the pregnant woman and, and the unborn child is guarded for here in these laws. That somebody hits her and the child comes out, but no harm. There, there is a, a payment that is to be had. But yet, if uh, further damage is done, we see there in verse 24, a well-known verse, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, hand for a hand, foot for a foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, strike for strike. Whatever was injured of the infant, of the little one, was to be required of the one that did the damage. So justice was to be carried out. The one who harmed this little life. Then that of the slave stricken, if he loses his eye or his tooth, they too are to be set free because they have lost their dignity of that eye or that tooth. Then it goes even into the fact of animals killing or harming another human being. Laws regarding that, calling that if a beast harms or kills an individual, that there is to be payment. If it just simply does damage, then a fitable payment. But if it kills, the animal is to be put down. Nothing happens of the owner. But if the animal is known to have already done this and does it again, then the owner and the animal are to be put to death because the, or the owner has been negligent in his care of neighbor and his duty to God in obeying his law. So laws are given regarding all of this. But then laws of, of restitution are, are given in, in concern about private, or, uh, private property. So that, uh, again, going back to the animals, if, if somebody digs a pit and somebody's animal falls into it and it's harmed, payment is to be had. If the animal is killed, then they're to split that uh, of the dead animal and then the one who was responsible is to buy a new one for the one who lost his previous. So... Payment is to be given. All of these are means of providing. Again, culturally, it's easy for us to think, okay, so what? He lost some hamburger meat. Good grief, go down to Aldi and it's done. You, you can buy, even in a day of meat being an arm and a leg, you can still get it and it'd be okay. That's not how it worked. There wasn't an Aldi to go and restore meat. These were animals that they depended upon for livelihood. The ox, if it died and something happened to it, there was no plowing of the fields. There was no means of provision. This was looking out for the people and their well-being. This is how they cared for one another and loved one another practically in these means, even if their property was damaged. If their land was set on fire, whoever caused the fire would owe payment and restitution, paying for this issue. Again, 
more and more laws go on through there. Then we see laws on social matters. Uh, in verse or 22, verse 16, it says, If a man seduces a virgin who is not betrothed and lies with her, he shall give the bride price for her and make her his wife. If her father utterly refuses to give her to him, he shall pay money equal to the bride price for virgins. You know, again, cultural aspects. There's cultural things we need to pick up here. In a society we live in today with a sexual revolution, people don't think anything of that, of sexual immorality. In an honor and shame culture, though, to have had somebody raped and virginity taken from them brings utter shame to the person and to the family. And this law guards the one that does this, or it guards the one who's abused in this way. It guards them from being put to shame by society. It guards them from not having provision and being cast out. The laws guard the people in how they live together. Another death penalty of you shall not permit a sorceress to live. Whoever lies with an animal shall be put to death. Whoever sacrifices to any God other than the Lord alone shall be devoted to destruction. More death penalty for those that break these laws. Then warnings against wronging the sojourner or lending money. The people are not to treat the sojourner poorly and they're not to charge interest. If they borrow a cloak of a man, they're not to keep it overnight in taking and keeping the one thing that keeps them warm and safe. They're to give it back. Interest is not to be given and charged. People are to care for one another, to provide for one another. But then in, in 28 through 31, it comes back to God. You shall not revile God nor curse a ruler of your people. You shall not delay to offer from the fullness of your harvest and from the outflow of your presses. The firstborn of your sons you shall give to me. You shall do the same with your oxen and with your sheep. Seven days it shall be with its mother. On the eighth day you shall give it to me. You shall be consecrated to me. Therefore you shall not eat any flesh that is torn by beast in the field. You shall throw it to the dogs. This whole point of consecration is driving back the reason and the grounds for all of these instructions. You belong to me. The consecration, the reminder of it. Your firstborn are mine. But they represent you as a whole people. You are mine. I bought you. I delivered you from slavery. I own you. I'm your king. I'm your God. All of these laws are grounded in who the people are in God. And it goes on in back to, to giving instructions. Again, the, the reminder of not spread a false report or bear false witness. Uh, it says there in verse 1, uh, a wicked man to be a malicious witness. You shall not fall in with the many to do evil. In other words, don't be persuaded by the group, the majority. The Hebrew was not to be persuaded by others wanting to say, let's just get this over with. They were to stand guard and make sure they had the evidence of two or three verifying of, of the guilt. They were to give accurate uh, witness of it. They weren't to give false witness just to get the thing over with. 
gives laws even regarding that of an enemy's animals. There in verse 23, verse 4, if you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey going astray, you shall bring it back to him. If you see the donkey of one who hates you lying down under its burden, you shall refrain from leaving him with it. You shall rescue it with him. Even that of enemies, their property is to be cared for. You would help them. Verse 6, justice is not to be perverted in lawsuit. Again, in verse 9, going back to not oppressing the sojourner. A lot of various laws. All of these laws, I'm not expecting us to even walk away understanding fully. But I hope we get this. God gives a set of laws to his people in order to guard them from themselves and to care for them. This is the practical day in and day out that the people were to love one another together, to provide for one another together, to safeguard one another. The whole call to justice is about how the society of the Hebrew people were to live together. And why does this matter? Because the watching nations were watching. They were looking. Here's this mighty God we've heard all about. Here's a God who, who brought the people out of Egypt. Here's the God who split the Red Sea and crushed the Egyptians, the, the prominent people of the day. Who is this God? He's a God of justice. A God who demands justice. And therefore, he's calling his people to live in such a just way in how they love one another, to show his character to the watching nations so that they may be in awe of God. A people that ignore justice do not rightly represent God. But a people who carry these things out show both a love for God and those made in his image. Christian. We can't see the same laws today. One, we don't live in that type of nation. Israel was a different and unique nation, guided by the whole of the law of God. But we can labor for justice in the here and now in a variety of different ways. As a people of God, we can ensure that we labor for just laws, that we labor for justices to be put on the court who actually argue and, and defend the innocent and the poor, those that are not unjust and cruel. We can labor for justice in fighting for the rights of the unborn and advocating for them and serving pregnancy clinics. The bottles are in every Sunday school room and, and out in the foyer. Fill them up and serve. That's one way we fight for justice in the here and the now. Caring for the most vulnerable. Let us pursue justice in these ways. But above all, Christian, how are we living together? If we're not carrying out these basic principles of justice amongst one another, what is the watching world going to think? Laboring for justice, especially amongst one another, doesn't hinder our mission. It advances it. Because as the watching world looks at how we interact and care for one another, it's going to say, they actually believe what they say they believe, or they don't. Do we believe what God has said 
And will we labor to live and worship God alone and love one another in these practical means, in it playing out in everything we do or not? Or are we going to be worried about giving malicious witness and biting and devouring one another? That will hinder our mission if we do. Churches that are full of that kind of mentality hinder the mission and the glory of God. They don't advance it because they're too busy fighting one another instead of proclaiming the glory of Christ. But how do we wait? How do we wait in the midst of all of this? We live, as we very well know, in a broken world. We live in a world where sin continues to seem to reign. So how do we wait? It's what we look at quickly here in uh, point number three. There at the end of chapter 23 and verses 20 through, uh, 33, sorry, not 32, 33, uh, 23, 20 through 33, we see the promised conquering of Canaan. The Lord opens here in verse 20 saying, Behold, I send an angel before you to guard you on the way and to bring you the place that I have prepared. Pay careful attention to him and obey his voice. Do not rebel against him, for he will not pardon your transgression, for my name is in him. So one more reminder for the people to obey all that God has said, to obey and follow him, to do what he has promised. But look there at verse 22. But if you carefully obey his voice and do all that I say, then I will be an enemy to your enemies and an adversary to your adversary. Verse 23, when my angel goes before you and brings you to the Amorites and the Hittites and the Perizzites and the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Jebusites, and I blot them out, you shall not bow down to their gods, nor serve them, nor do as they do, but you shall utterly overthrow them and break their pillars in pieces. You shall serve the Lord your God, and he will bless your bread and your water, and I will take sickness away from among you. God promises the conquering of the land that he has promised. So the people, as they are still laboring to fight for this justice, as they are waiting to, to enter God's promised land, he gives this assurance, he gives this hope that, okay, it's not here yet, but it's coming. I will blot out every one of these nations. It's going to take time but I'm going to throw them out. I'm going to destroy them. Your only thing is worship me alone and carry out what I have called you to do. They set their eyes on the promise. And that's what keeps them going. Even now, Christian, as we see a world full of injustice, as we see a world full of sin and it's raging, as we see more and more abuse cases arise, even within our own denomination, what do we do? We keep fighting. We keep working to make right what is wrong. But we set our eyes on the hope of Christ. That all things are going to be made new once and for all when he comes again. We set our eyes on this fact that there will be a day when no more tears are shed, no more sorrow. We set our eyes on when the King of glory returns and his kingdom is fully established once and for all. Christian, this is our hope. This is what keeps us driving in the midst 
of it all. The hope we have in Jesus. And friend, if you're here this morning and you do not know this Jesus, what are you waiting for? You can give all the sacrifices you want. You can pursue justice all you want. But you will fail and still be condemned. Because the only righteousness is found in Christ. He is the sacrifice. In his shed blood, he died so that sinners could come to him and live forever. Let's pray.